Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Barrier Breakdown. My name is Erin Molyneux-Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner of Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode, we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Catherine Fox, who is joining us to discuss the meta-analysis of suicide interventions. Dr. Fox is an assistant professor in the clinical psychology PhD program at the University of Denver and the director of the Fox Lab. The primary goal of Catherine's research is to improve the understanding and treatment of self-injurious thoughts and behaviors, broadly defined, and to help reduce these behaviors on a large scale, particularly among adolescents and LGBTQ plus youth. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Fox. This is a topic that I know is really near and dear to a lot of people and especially with the pandemic. So could you share with us a little bit about how you got involved in this specific type of research? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, first of all. Um, I think I, I a little bit fell into this specific topic area. I studied uh, depression as an undergraduate working with Dr. Judy Garber and in particular depression in youth and the transmission of depression. And through that work, I started to learn a little bit about non-suicidal self-injury. So like cutting and burning without wanting to die and became really fascinated in that behavior in particular because growing up I had many friends who struggled with self-harm. Um, and I learned through some of the research that most people who engage in those behaviors say that doing so helped them to feel better, which I just found to be a question that was really interesting in my mind why hurting somebody would actually help them to feel better. So I started to study non-suicidal self-injury, which you really can't study without also studying suicidal thoughts and behaviors because they co-occur so much. And so that's how I kind of ended up in this topic area. It's impossible not to, at least to me, it felt impossible to not read about it and immediately feel for these people who are struggling so much and experiencing so much pain and whose pain is just so ubiquitous right now in our country, whether it's you personally experiencing suicidal thoughts and behaviors or a friend or a loved one. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up studying this topic more broadly. Fascinating. Uh, with, with the pandemic, uh, have you seen any literature uh, about, you know, rates of, of specific uh, harm without death intention or with death intention? Uh, have you noticed anything about that? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion broadly that the pandemic might be leading to huge increases, both in non-suicidal self-injury and in suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And there's some evidence that we might be seeing increases in suicidal thoughts and behaviors, but it's really not at all certain as of yet. And in fact, other people hypothesize that we might actually see decreases right now when people are potentially closer together in some cases and or might be brought together by this shared um, terrible thing going on in the world. And so really we need to hold out and see what happens before before, for sure jumping to that, we're gonna have higher rates of suicide death, for example, which some people are saying it could happen. Um, but I'm hopeful that there might be some other things going on that might mitigate that. Okay, great. I'm curious to hear more about the, the research that you've done and some of the specifics. So if you could highlight some of them, uh, I'd be excited to hear about that. Should I specifically chat about the meta-analysis or about other studies? Uh, let's talk about the meta-analysis. 
Okay, awesome. So alongside a bunch of colleagues, this was not at all my own thing. This was a huge group effort. We were really curious to better understand how well our interventions are doing at reducing what we call self-injurious thoughts and behaviors. So that includes non-suicidal self-injury that I mentioned before, like cutting and burning without wanting to die. It includes suicidal thoughts. It includes non-fatal suicidal behaviors like suicide attempts and suicide gestures, as well as dying by suicide or suicide death. And so we wanted to see kind of across the board how well our intervention's doing. And so we used a meta-analysis to test that question because meta-analyses are these, this fantastic tool where basically you're able to systematically take in all of the studies that have been conducted on a topic, in our case, interventions for suicide and self-harm, and then look on average, how well are we doing? Um, and so we included over 600 studies that's used what's called a randomized control trial design, meaning they were comparing some intervention to another using a gold standard experimental approach. Um, and then we ran a whole bunch of analyses to look at, you know, overall, how well are our, our treatments doing? How well have they done over time? Are we better at treating some self-injurious thoughts and behaviors compared to others? Those kinds of things. Are some of our interventions stronger than others? All of that. Um, so that's kind of broadly what we were trying right. to do. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, one, one question that comes to mind as you think about this from other clinicians, uh, and I know early on in my career, it was more difficult, is really discerning suicide ideation versus a, maybe an attempt that's failed or for some reason was interrupted. So how do you, how do you define that? Yeah, I think it's important to know that people define these thoughts and behaviors so differently across researchers, even the CDC and the World Health Organization define them differently. So the definitions that I tend to subscribe to are that suicidal thoughts are cognition. So things like, I want to kill myself would be a suicidal thought. I, even I wish I were dead might be a passive type of suicidal thought. Even the thought I am going to kill myself, as long as it's a thought and not including any action within it, that would be a suicidal thought. Then you mentioned what's called um, an interrupted or an aborted suicide attempt. So that's when somebody gets very close to killing themselves, but at the last minute they decide not to or someone or something else interrupts them. So that might include somebody going up to the top of a very tall building, um, getting very close to the edge, planning to kill themselves, intending to kill themselves, and then at the last minute, deciding to step away and not to take that action. Whereas a suicide attempt would be any time that somebody takes steps to um, try to kill themselves. So that could actually be that I am intending to kill myself, for example, by self-cutting, and I start to cut my skin with the intention of dying, but then I change my mind. As soon as I've inflicted that harm on myself, that would be categorized by many researchers as a suicide attempt. So I say all this to say it's, it's definitely messy. Even the idea of suicide intent is messy. When you chat with people who have engaged in suicidal behaviors, you'll hear them say, you know what, I'm not entirely sure what I was thinking at the time. I started to cut myself and I think I wanted to die, but I don't know how much I really wanted to die. And it ends up a lot messier than it sounds from the researcher perspective, which I think many clinicians are probably more than aware of. Sure. You know, one other thought that comes to mind with all this is, as, as you look at uh, the attempts or aborted in some way, or just ideation, are they any one factors within any of that, uh, a predictor of future likelihood of attempting and completing? So um, the team that I ran this meta-analysis with actually also worked on another one where we were trying to look at predictors of mm -hmm. suicide and self-harm. And what we found is that on the whole, we're really bad at predicting suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviors. Some of the strongest predictors, as you're saying, are a prior history of suicidal thoughts and a prior history of suicidal behaviors, um, and even a history of non-suicidal self-injury. And yet those on their own are never gonna be able to well predict whether or not a single person will be, for example, trying to kill themselves in the future. The effect sizes are so small. And these are just such complicated outcomes that are likely due to a 
a range of factors that might even change within a person over time, let alone across people. Yeah, I know two assessments. There's a Columbia uh, assessment, and I think even the Beck has an intentional scale. Are any of those helpful at all as far as predictors or how to manage individuals? I think that those kinds of tools, um, structured interviews, for example, like the Columbia, um, when you're doing a self-report measure like the Beck Suicide Intention Scale, which I think can also be done as an interview, th there's a lot of utility there, right? You're directly asking people about their suicidal thoughts, their suicide intention, their history of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Even though on their own, those are not great predictors, we still know that those are predictors of, for example, really struggling, experiencing a lot of pain, mm -hmm. and potentially having those thoughts again in the future. So it can be extremely helpful to make sure that people are aware, for example, of hotlines, warm lines, things like that, that they can reach out to if they're experiencing suicide crises the future. Whether or not they're then effective at predicting a suicide death, probably not. The effect sizes on their own are very, very low. And yet we as clinicians have to do something, right? We care so much about the people coming to see us who are struggling and we want to try to help give them tools to keep themselves safe. And that's one step in that direction. Kind of part of the complexities with that is, is that in Western Pennsylvania, at least hunting is very important. And for some individuals, you know, taking that step to three or two, then there are implications for them for the long term. And that's where that's just one that comes to mind. Uh, and so that's where that can oftentimes be important and why I ask. But it's, yeah. it's tough. I think, you know, the 302 situation, I, I've worked in Pennsylvania um, as well when I was on internship and um, worked at the psychiatric emergency room at Western Psychiatric. And it's it's heartbreaking um, often to chat with people who feel like, you know what, they were struggling, but they weren't actually even intending to kill themselves at that moment. And somehow they're then taken entirely outside of their lives and told that you're at risk of hurting yourself, hospitalized, et cetera, in a way that might be really unhelpful and even iatrogenic, meaning harmful for them long-term. And so I think it's important that as clinicians and as people, we remember that, yes, we want to help keep other people safe. And yet they are a human that has rights and there are ways to help them that don't necessarily involve putting them in handcuffs and taking them to a hospital. Um, you might be able to help them in other ways, for example. And I think that it's important that we start chatting with people who have lived experience of suicide crises in order to better understand how they think they would like to receive help and keep themselves safe. You make an excellent point when it comes to trying to help them, you know, outside of, of 302ing them. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners who are likely clinicians who are working to prevent or reduce these self-injurious thoughts or behaviors of their clients? I think that one in, like, incredibly important thing to remember as a clinician and as a friend of somebody who might be struggling is that our main goal is to provide support and help somebody to stay safe, right? And they're still, again, a person who has rights, et cetera. And so I think that it's really important that first of all, if we are going to have to 302 them, for example, if as a clinician, there's a line at which, you know, we might have to take somebody to a psychiatric emergency room, maybe not 302 them, but at least take them to the emergency room, making sure that we tell these clients in advance exactly what that line is so that they get to decide what they're sharing, what those consequences might be, et cetera, and they're in control of that. Because when we take that away and we surprise people with those kinds of outcomes, it just reduces trust in our system and decreases the likelihood that people are going to come to us when they're struggling, which ostensibly is our goal. So I think making sure at the very first session, um, 
that we're incredibly clear about what consent means, about when we might have to take steps that take away a little bit of their autonomy, those kinds of things. So that's one thought. Um, another thought is remembering that we do have a lot of resources at our disposal. Not everybody loves suicide hotlines um, for a range of reasons. There are cases too where um, 911 might be called on somebody, for example. And yet there are others that are much less likely to use those kinds of methods. And so making sure that people are aware of what resources are available to them if they are experiencing a suicide crisis in the future um, and letting them know even the bounds within that of confidentiality that may, that may exist um, and empowering them to ask those questions when they are calling to say at what point might you, for example, call 911 or try to get somebody to meet a force meet to the hospital. Um, I know that this, this kind of conversation can be really scary for us because you know, I think as clinicians, often our goal is to prevent suicide and that absolutely makes sense. And I think sometimes we get in our own way in doing that by thinking that we know better and kind of overstepping and taking away that autonomy. Aside from that, um, one big caveat, and I'm sorry for getting on a pedestal, but aside from that, I think another really important thing to do is chatting with people um, about suicide planning, which I'm sorry, not suicide planning, um, safety planning. Um, so specifically, that might be helping people to think through what are their triggers, what's going on in their mind and their surroundings, et cetera, that tends to be associated with them um, having suicidal thoughts or even in the past with them actually engaging in suicidal behaviors and then helping to talk them through what's worked for them in the past to get through those crises, whether it's things they can do on their own or a friend they might be able to call or something like that, as well as safety uh, means restriction more generally. So if you have a gun in the home, encouraging them to potentially lock up the gun, give the gun to a friend, having a few steps in between them being in a crisis in the moment and having easy access to a method that they might be able to use to harm themselves in that moment. So I, I think safety planning is just an incredibly important tool that we can use with people um, to help them again, manage their own safety and come up with a plan to, to maintain their autonomy to the degree possible. No, I think that's great. You know, one thing that I'd like to hear a little bit more about, what are some key things you think for uh, majority of mental health providers that I'm aware of are master's level. So if you had some things to pull from that meta-analysis, what would you like to drive home? What do you think is most important? You know, I think one of the most important things is we had assumed in advance that some treatment types were gonna emerge as better at reducing suicide and self-harm. Um, and that's just not what we found. There were so many treatments that were tested dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy of different varieties, problem solving therapy, multi-systemic, like just so many therapies. And yet none of these were emerging as better at reducing suicide and self-harm. There's an exception that dialectical behavioral therapy reduced hospitalizations compared to other treatments, but in terms of actually reducing suicide and self-harm, none of them were outperforming any other. And so what that says to me is that all of our treatments are working a little bit is what the meta-analysis shows. All of them are at least a tiny bit effective, not as much so as we want. We need to do more. We need to come up with better treatments. And yet in the moment, we do have things that can help somebody. And so I think trying to at least instill hope in our clients to say that, you know what, this is really difficult. I know that you are struggling and this might be helpful for you um, to give a little bit of hope that our treatments can work a little bit. And remember that something seems to be better than nothing. So if you're trained in a certain modality, it's likely that that modality will do pretty much just as well with a couple of exceptions. So I encourage folks to read studies that have been done, make sure the treatment they're administering isn't iatrogenic, isn't gonna make it worse. And then aside from that, I think this idea of something being better than nothing is just incredibly important. So people know that if somebody comes in without a ton of resources who can't be in therapy for months or even years, or who can't be part of a three-part treatment um, where you're meeting in groups and in person, that there are still options that might be helpful for them. 
you know, two questions come to mind uh, is how did you guys uh, control for or couldn't control for as identify is efficacy of actual training of the clinicians and was common factors of the clinician in, uh, looked at at all? Yeah, so what we did do is we looked at, for example, how much training went into um, making sure that the therapists in the study knew how to administer the specific treatment. Um, we also looked at whether or not there was supervision, those kinds of things. Those have not emerged as significantly predictive of treatments being more or less effective. Um, more soon on that, we haven't actually published that specific analysis. But all of that to say, not every study even says, for example, how clinicians were trained in a given treatment. So it is absolutely possible that some of our studies included clinicians that just hadn't been trained on a modality. And then when that modality didn't perform treatment as usual, um, that could have led to some of the weaker effects that we observed. In terms of those individual uh, difference ther uh, therapist factors, things like being able to gain rapport with a client and trust and all of that, that wasn't able to be measured here because most of the studies we included didn't include that as an outcome, didn't ask how much clients were trusting their providers, et cetera. But that absolutely is very likely related to the outcomes. That's what we see kind of across the board in our field. Um, and that was just not able to be looked at here. Okay. What do you think future research should really be geared towards uh, as you look to what you guys have all learned from this uh, meta-analysis? I have a few thoughts. I think one thought that I have is that most people in the United States cannot access traditional forms of treatment. Um, it's incredibly expensive. Most people don't have insurance that covers mental health. And even if they do, it covers a limited number of sessions, um, particularly when we're talking about teens who often need to get their parents involved, depending on the state they live in, etc. It just suggests to me that traditional treatment modalities on their own are just never going to be enough. Um, and so I'm really passionate about trying to disrupt the system. I think traditional forms of therapy are incredibly important for those who can access them. And I think we have this amazing tool, the internet at our fingertips that so many Americans and particularly teens are on. So I'm really passionate about right now, disseminating really brief treatments that might be helpful in reducing mental health difficulties, including suicide and self-harm. So alongside a collaborator at Stony Brook University, um, we're looking at single session interventions and administering those online to teenagers to see whether and how well they can reduce different mental health difficulties in teenagers. Um, on its own, I don't think that this is enough. These are obviously very, very small bite-sized treatments. And yet the meta-analysis showed us that longer and shorter treatments don't look significantly different, at least right now, until we come up with something better. So for me as a researcher, I'm really passionate about testing, man, can we do something really small and bite-sized that could have a big impact by reaching a lot of people? Um, in addition to that, I think we need to do a better job at understanding what the causes of suicide and self-harm are. I think it's really easy for people to kind of boil it down to, oh, it's depression or, oh, it's hopelessness. And those on their own are just never going to be enough at explaining why people are engaging in suicidal thoughts and behaviors. You know, so many people are depressed and never try to kill themselves. And similarly, somebody might not be hopeless at all and still might make a suicide attempt. And so we need to better better accept that these are going to be complex behaviors to predict and understand and really embrace and lean into that complexity when trying to look at and better understand what's causing these thoughts and behaviors over time. So for me, that's two directions. Yes, you brought up a very interesting point regarding the teens and, and the internet. We actually uh, had, a, had a conversation with a researcher who was using social media to identify schizophrenic traits uh, with teens online through social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook. Do you have any thoughts to that related to suicide? I, I think it's a fantastic approach. That's how I've been recruiting participants for a lot of the work that I'm doing right now. We know that people are going to these websites when they're struggling. Um, 
And it's just this fantastic way to reach people in real time who might be searching for terms like suicide, self-harm, or on pages, for example, related to Instagram, looking for mental health support, right? And we can literally target advertisements related to mental health to these youth who are seeking out treatment options and seeking out support. And I think it's just this phenomenal opportunity to leverage something that's at so many teens' fingertips already to get them treatment that they otherwise never would have had. Fantastic. I think this is great information. Uh, I think it's uh, really important at the right time. And I appreciate you uh, spending some time with us today to talk about, I'm sure we could spend all week about this, but really just kind of highlighting the importance of this particular issue and uh, the need for clinicians on maybe some direction to get additional training. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I, I just want to quickly say that I didn't actually name all of the collaborators. I particularly want to give a shout out to Irene Huang, um, without whom this project never would have ended. It was so many more studies than we had anticipated. And honestly, I just got so overwhelmed. And she's just this super conscientious, fantastic researcher that really led us to the finish line. And Joe Franklin, who really spearheaded the whole thing to begin with, got everybody together. Um, just so many fantastic researchers too, across the whole paper. So that's not to say the others are not equally important. They absolutely are. But I want to make sure that I've said their names because sometimes I get too caught up in answering a question. Right. And I want to make it clear this was not just me um, by any means. And I never would have been able to do it on my own. Seems like a yeah. great team effort. Yes, it does sound like a great team. Well, well, wonderful. We hope that in the future, you and perhaps other members of your team, uh, as you continue your research, would would reach back out to us or get in contact with us so that we can have you on our podcast again. We'd, we'd like very much that to continue to follow your research. I would love that. Thank you guys again for having me. And I look forward to following your podcast. Wonderful. Thank you, Thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. We hope everyone stays safe and healthy. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute, and CBI Center for Education as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.